I was nervous, I was anxious, and I felt quite a bit self-conscious. Uh, I had just received the call the previous night at about 11 p.m. I got this call, and I rushed off to get an emergency PCR test, getting ready for the next morning. And sometimes you think that you're prepared for something, and then you find out that you're not really as prepared as you thought. You see, uh, I was called as, uh, in my capacity as the chairman of the Council of Evangelical Churches in this country, as well as the, as the senior pastor of our church here, ECC, to join a delegation of religious leaders uh, to meet Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of our nation himself. Uh, and that was earlier this year, some of you know, in uh, the month of May, when uh, Sheikh Khalifa had passed. And Sheikh Mohammed was being crowned as King of Abu Dhabi, as well as being appointed as the President of the UAE. Uh, we were being called in both to convey our condolences, as well as to congratulate him uh, on his appointment. And you think you're prepared for something like this. I soon found out that I wasn't really. In addition to the weight of the event itself, and I have this one suit, really nice suit, that I bought years ago, and it has served me well for many years. But like most men my age, for some reason we deceive ourselves into thinking all our clothes fit really well, and we find out too late in the game sometimes that mm, that isn't really the case. I also had bought these clergy collared shirts, you see, that when I moved to the UAE, I knew I'd be needing them for some occasions like this, so I bought clergy collared shirts, and all of a sudden, I found that the, the, the collar doesn't even button anymore. And, and my sweet wife had been reminding me of these things. She told me, you know, you, you've gained more than 20 kilos in the last three years. Your wardrobe really needs an update. Well, ah, it'll be fine. I'll fit. And then all too late, I find out, well, it doesn't really fit. But praise God, early in the morning, thank God for my wife's tailoring skills. And she was able to do some last-minute emergency tailoring, and I managed to hold my breath and get inside all of this. And so I show up at Mushrif Palace, and, and you know, throughout this time, there's this nightmare situation going on in my mind of approaching to meet the king and the suit button popping off, <laughs> or the clergy collar slipping out, which kept happening. And I kept, you know, carefully, constantly touching my neck like this. Well, we got there, we went through an elaborate, elaborate security check. You know, we submitted our Emirates IDs and our passports. Then we walked through a number of compartments or different sections of the palace. These were rooms that were splendorous and majestic. Uh, we wait in one section, then we go into an inner section, and then after some waiting, finally, we were led in to this innermost section. And there, for a brief moment, one by one in line, we went up, and make eye contact with the king himself, Sheikh Mohammed. And I told him that we are praying for him, and he thanked me. It was just momentary, and then you're ushered out. And as I think about that scenario, I am reminded, and I get an idea of the people of Israel who came to something very much like a palace, in fact, a sanctuary, to meet not just an earthly king, but the king of kings himself, the Lord God, our creator. This is where they would meet with him, in this sanctuary. 
And as they approached his presence, they were self-conscious. Not self-conscious merely because of an undersized suit. But they were reminded of their real and objective guilt before the holy God of heaven and earth. They were reminded that because of their sin, they had no free access into his presence. And they had a conscious conscience, a self-consciousness of their sin. A conscience that constantly reminded them of their great guilt and of their many sins before a holy God. And those sins were indeed many. And the fact that the blood of all animals, the old covenant sacrificial system itself, could never make them completely clean, could never grant them complete access. And as we think about ourselves, dear friends, we recognize that apart from Christ, we face the same problem. We face the problem of a lack of access to God's presence, a guilty conscience that reminds us of our guilt and our sinfulness before a holy God. What is the solution to this problem? How could our consciences be truly cleansed? How could we be granted access? Well, today's text is going to answer these questions. And the author of Hebrews will answer these questions for us by showing us a contrast. A contrast between the old sanctuary, the tabernacle that God gave to his people for their worship. He's going to contrast that old sanctuary with what our Lord Jesus Christ the great high priest of the new covenant has done. The new and better sanctuary into which we are invited to commune with God. Remember the theme of this whole section, chapters 7 to 10 of Hebrews is this. We have a better high priest who has offered a better sacrifice and gained entry into a better sanctuary and he makes us members of a better covenant. He brings us into a better covenant. Put simply in three words, Jesus is better. And the author was speaking to these people who wanted to go back to that old covenant system and he tells them, Jesus is better. Do you really want to go back? There is no hope there. And as we look at what Christ has done this morning, brothers and sisters, we should feel great freedom. The great freedom that comes with a clean conscience and the assurance of access that we have into God's presence. So our structure in the text here is very simple. It breaks down neatly into two parts. If we look at chapter 9, section 1 is the first sanctuary, verses 1 to 10. We look at the first sanctuary, its setup, its service, and its significance. And then in verses 11 to 14, we see the better sanctuary. And we'll look at it in terms of its sphere, its sacrifice, and its sanctification. Right? So let's Look at our text and consider the first sanctuary, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tab tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
So the author of Hebrews here is taking us through an exposition of the Old Testament. He is taking us back to the Old Covenant and the sanctuary that God gave to His people to meet with Him. Now, to understand this, we must understand where it is situated in the context and in the story of Scripture. Right? The story of the Bible begins in the book of Genesis, where God, by His Word, by speaking, creates heaven and earth. He creates a beautiful garden paradise named Eden, and He creates Adam and Eve in His image to be His representatives, places them in this garden as His priests to serve Him. To worship Him. That is the purpose of their existence. The garden was sort of a sanctuary where God Himself met with His people, met with Adam and Eve. They had fellowship with Him as He walked among them. But then Adam and Eve sinned and they rebelled. They rebelled against God. And because of their sin, they were banished from God's presence. Banished from the garden in the eastward direction. They were exiled and God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way back in. And then the rest of the Bible is the story of how the Lord God makes a way, makes provision for His people to come back into His presence, to live in fellowship with Him once again. And so as you keep reading, God initiates a series of covenants and He makes promises to His people. He redeems His people, the nation of Israel, from Egypt, from slavery, brings them to himself. He gave them his perfect law, entered into covenant relationship with them, and as part of that covenant, as part of that law, he gave them a sanctuary, a tent, by which he would dwell among them. If you read the older Bibles, this tent was uh, called the tabernacle. That's an older word for a tent. It's kind of a special word. This was God's special meeting place with his people. This was how the holy God would dwell among a sinful people. It was the first sanctuary that the author tells us about. And we see here it's set up. Verse 1, notice what he says. The first, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. The worship of the people of God is never by human imagination or by human initiative, but always by God's instruction. The worship of God is always regulated by God's Word. By the way, that's why we worship the way that we do here at ECC. If you wondered why do we do these particular things, it's because that's what's prescribed for us in God's Word in the New Testament. And if you want an explanation of those things, you can look at the couple of pages in your bulletins that, where we lay out for you how the New Testament instructs us to worship. It was the same in the Old Covenant. They were given particular instructions for worship. That's what he's saying. Even the First Covenant had regulations for worship. You had to follow God's instruction. And it had this earthly place of holiness, this earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle, which was particularly designed and given by God to His people. It had uh, these outer courts. It was in three sections. The outer courts, where there was an altar on which sacrifices were made and offered for sin. And then there was a, another section... This is what he calls here the first section. It was called the holy place in which there was a lampstand, a golden lampstand that symbolized the light of God's presence with his people. And there was a table with 12 loaves of bread on it with the 12 loaves symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then beyond that, however, 
was a very special compartment. This was called the most holy place. This was beyond a second curtain. There was a huge veil from top to bottom guarding entry into this most holy place. No one could easily enter. No one was allowed. And in this most holy place, there was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. In its symbolism in the ancient world, the Ark represents the footstool of a king. And inside of this Ark, inside of this box, there were a few items. There was a jar which contained manna, the same manna that God provided for His people when they were wandering in the wilderness, symbolizing God's provision. There was a staff that had blossomed. This was a staff of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, again uh, symbolizing God's shepherding of His people through His anointed leaders. And there were two tablets of stone with God's law written on them, symbolizing that God Almighty rules His people by His word. And overshadowing this ark were the cherubim, these fearsome angelic creatures in a posture of bowing down, symbolizing their lowliness and their bowing down before God's presence. On the veil was also the cherubim, indicating that to re-enter into this section was kind of like re-entering into Eden once again, into God's presence. And nobody could go in there. And we could talk a lot about this thing. We could go on and on. But the author says, like any good expositor who realizes that people have a limited attention span, he says, now is not the time to go into detail. So I'm sorry we're not going into further detail there. That was the first sanctuary's setup. Next, the author of Hebrews tells us about its service, the first sanctuary's service. Look at verses 6 and 7. These preparations having thus been made... The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So in the first section, the holy place, the priests would enter. Any ordinary Israelite couldn't go in there. It was only the priests, the men from the tribe of Levi who had been appointed by God to be the mediators of God's people. They would enter regularly into the holy place uh, in order to perform certain ritual duties. They would change the oil of the lampstand. They would replace the loaves on the table once a week on the Sabbath. But into the second section, the most holy place, not even the priests would go. No, this was very special. Only the high priest goes and he, but once a year. The author here is talking about a very special ceremony and, and a day in the life of Israel in their annual calendar, the Day of Atonement, that is found in Leviticus 16. Now, Leviticus 16, that chapter is the center of the book of Leviticus. It's the center chapter in the first five books of the Bible. And we preached a sermon, I preached a sermon through Leviticus 16 last year. You can go back and listen to that for more detail. But this was a special day appointed by God for atonement for the people's sins. And on this day, only the high priest would enter into the most holy place. That's the only time you ever enter that compartment. The high priest was the leader and representative of the people of God. He was to function as a mediator, as a go-between between God and the people. 
Normally, he was dressed in splendorous garments, majestic garments. On this particular day, he was dressed more like a slave in white linen, entering as a lowly creature of the dust, a sinful, flawed human being, into the presence of Almighty God, but for a moment, once a year. And did you see what it says? He says, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. The high priest was to slay a bull first for his own sins, recognizing that he himself, the man who is the spiritual leader of the people of God, he himself was a sinner. And then he would slay a goat as a sin offering, as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. Reminding the people that the wages of sin is death. And it is with the blood of this bull and of this goat that he would be permitted to go forward. The blood representing the fact that a death has taken place as the penalty for sin. And so we see here the work of substitutionary sacrifice. These sacrifices were made and the high priest takes this blood and in he goes the blood provides purification and cleansing for God's people and for God's place and provides entry, temporary access for a brief moment, access into the presence of God for this one man, the high priest. And once a year, every year, year after year, this ritual took place, symbolizing that what was lost in the garden has now been regained just for a moment. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve were banished in uh, an eastward direction. Here the high priest is entering from east to west, past the cherubim on the veil, guarding the way in. He goes in for just a moment as, God's rep uh, as the representative of the people of God, momentarily entering into the presence of God through blood sacrifice. And the debt of the people's sin is not fully paid. It's put off for another year, for just another year, year after year. The pollution of the people's sin is not fully cleansed. It's temporarily wiped clean, just for a little while longer. So that was the first sanctuary's service. We've seen its setup and its service. And then the author tells us its significance, the first sanctuary's significance. Look at verses 8 to 10. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Did you see what he says? He says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that God, by His inspired, inscripturated word, by His instructions and law for His people, by the establishment of this sanctuary and tabernacle, is teaching His people something, is instructing His people, is showing them something. It's all symbolic, meant to teach and show the people something. What is it signifying? What is the Holy Spirit saying through all of this? Well, He's saying that the way to God is not yet opened. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Full and complete access to God's presence wasn't provided. 
That's what this entire system indicates. The ability to boldly draw near to his throne of grace, to freely enter in, was not given to sinful human beings. Not yet. And so for all of the people of Israel, God's covenant people, the people whom he redeemed from slavery and has entered into a covenant relationship with, for all of the people of Israel, no access. For all of the nations of the world, the Gentiles, people throughout the inhabited world, this sanctuary stood there with this curtain, screening, absolutely not, no access. Even for the priests themselves, the mediators of God's people, God's appointed representatives, no access. Not even for the king of Israel. No king dared enter into the most holy place. No access. Only for the high priest. Only for a moment. Once a year, at risk to his own life, momentary access was granted. And this huge veil stood there for generations and generations as if it were screaming out in all capital letters, bold and in red, screaming, no access. You see, that entire system was temporary, right? Notice what the author says, verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The entire old covenant system was temporary. It was provisional. It was never meant to grant access. No, it was meant to teach something. He says, did you see that? He says these were regulations for the body. All of what the old covenant accomplished was external. These old covenant sacrifices, that entire system, never dealt with the heart of the problem, which is the problem of your heart. They provided an outward cleansing, but no inward change. They provided outward purification, but no inward holiness. Those sacrifices, those washings, could cleanse their bodies, but not cleanse their hearts and could never deal with the burden of a guilty conscience. You know, as one pastor puts it, have you ever had an experience where you've gone and asked somebody for forgiveness, somebody whom you've wronged? You know, might go and apologize and ask their forgiveness, and they say, ah, it's okay. But then you feel the need or the urge to go and ask them again. You say, hey, I'm really, really sorry. Please forgive me. They say, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. No, I, I mean it. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. Why do you do that? Why would you ask someone for forgiveness over and over? That's because your conscience might not be fully assured that you were indeed forgiven. And as you think about that, just think about the way that this entire system worked on the consciousness, on the consciences of the covenant people. The ceremony takes place year after year, every year, generation after generation. The sacrifices are offered again and again as blood of these innocent animals is spilt on the floor. It raises the question, why does this ritual keep on being repeated? If sins were cleansed completely, comprehensively, then why are we doing it again the following year? And again and again, with every sacrifice, with every day of atonement, there is a reminder 
and an impressing on the conscience of the people of their sins and their sinfulness before a holy God. Despite all the repetition, despite all the sacrifices, just brief momentary access for just one guy into the presence of God, would there be something more? Could there be something more? All of those sacrifices acting like a credit card, not paying off the debt in full, but just stacking it up year after year. All of it was imposed until a time of reformation, the author says, because you see something greater had to come. Something better had to be provided. And now the author tells us that it has been. Verses 11 to 14, he shows us the better sanctuary. The better sanctuary, what has come. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see what he says when Christ appeared. Christ has appeared. He is the high priest of good things that have come. And once again, the author shows us uh, this feature of the Bible called typology. He's showing us how to read our Bibles. Typology. He's showing us that everything under the old covenant was a type, was a pattern. Remember, God works in history and in the writing of his word to form patterns, Persons, events, and institution that form a pattern, a picture, a preview of what Christ would do, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He fulfills those patterns. And part of the way that these types function is to help us understand Jesus, who he is and what he does correctly. You see, when it says that Jesus is a high priest, we are not supposed to understand this as him being a high priest in the same way that there are priests in some other non-Christian religions, for example. In Hinduism in India, they have you know, uh, priests in their temples. African traditional religions have priests. A lot of pagan religions around the world historically have had priests. Christ is not that kind of a priest. No, to understand what the meaning of his priesthood is, we must know how priesthood functioned in God's plan, in his word. The Old Testament gives us an understanding of how priesthood is supposed to work and then Christ fulfills that pattern, not only fulfills it, he is much greater than it. It's the same with the sacrifices, you see. Again, when we think of Christ as our sacrifice, we're not supposed to understand his sacrifice by how sacrifice functions in other religions. He's not the fulfillment of uh, the sacrifices that were offered in the Rig Veda, for instance, in Hinduism, or like sacrifices in other religions around the world or in history. No, the meaning of Christ's sacrifice is to be understood by understanding the meaning of the sacrifices under the old covenant. What did those sacrifices symbolize? What do they mean? And that tells us the meaning of what Jesus has done, except that he has fulfilled it in far greater measure. And it's the same with the sanctuary. See, the first sanctuary was meant to teach, signify, symbolize, point to the new and better sanctuary that Christ has inaugurated that, that we see here. 
By the way, this is why we do not have any symbolism or rituals in new covenant worship. Do you see? When we gather for new covenant worship as the people of God, as the church, our worship is supposed to be spiritual and simple. It's scriptural by all that is prescribed for us in the New Testament. Our worship is not to be symbolic and ritualistic. Because in the New Covenant, we have the fullness, the reality of what was symbolized under the old. Do you see? Christ is the reality. As one author says, we have no need for symbols to point to something greater. We who are in Christ have already experienced that which is greater. And so the author shows us here this new and better sanctuary, that which is greater. He begins by showing us its sphere, verse 11, its sphere. He says, Christ entered through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Christ our high priest did not enter into an earthly tent or an earthly holy of holies. No, Jesus entered into heaven itself, into the very presence of God, permanently, perpetually. He died on the cross, paying the perfect sacrifice for sinners. He rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. He ascended and was exalted into heaven, and he entered into the heavenly of holy of holies, where he now stands, saying, access granted. Access into the very presence of God. Everything that the earthly sanctuary represented has now been fulfilled in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been stuck in traffic in, in a big city? You know, sometimes uh, you're in a big city. This has happened to all of us, I assume, at one point or another. It's happened to me, certainly. But you're in a big city, and there's a big traffic jam. You want to get into the heart of the city, but it's taking a long time. Because you see, they're, they're building a new highway. And they're building this new highway that is supposed to go right into the heart of the city, but it isn't done yet. And so there are all of these diversions, and there's these construction sites, and barricades, and scaffolding, and all of these things that prevent you, that keep you kind of stuck. And, and you cannot really get there. But the fact that all this construction is taking place tells you that something is at work. Something's going to come. And then finally, one day, you visit the city again, or you get into that section of town again, and you see the new road has come. We have a highway straight into the center of the city. And, and all of those old construction sites and diversions and barricades are brought down because the highway has been built now. And what the author is telling us here is that the highway to heaven has been built. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the better high priest, has paved a superhighway straight into the heart of the heavenly city itself. The old barricades and the road diversions of the old covenant, those places that were under construction are no longer needed because Christ has paved the way and we can go straight into the heart of the heavenly city through our great high priest. And so the burning question, the burning question that we've been waiting to see answered since Eden has been answered Will human beings ever find a way back into God's presence? Will we ever be able to live in fellowship, dwelling with God once again? And Christ, our great high priest, stands in heaven with the wounds of his suffering still fresh for sinners, saying, yes, the way has been granted, a new and living way through the blood of Christ for all who will draw near. And friends, he's made that way for you and I to follow, for us, by faith. 
into the presence of God, into the heavenly kingdom, into our eternal home. And here's his promise. Standing in heaven, Jesus says, he will lead us home. Through him, we now have access. We have confidence to enter even now. So first we see the better sanctuary's sphere. It's heaven. It's far greater than the earthly sanctuary. Next we see the better sanctuary's sacrifice, verse 12. It's sacrifice. It says, he, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And again, our author is pointing us to the Day of Atonement. You remember on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter with the blood of a bull for his own sin, because he was a flawed sinner, just like the rest of us, with the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. But when Jesus entered, he did not enter through the blood of the sacrifices of dumb animals. Because the death of animals would never be enough to fully pay for our sin. No, he entered through his own blood, the author says. And you've got to be careful here because sometimes people, Christians, well-meaning Christians, misunderstand and misinter misinterpret what the Bible means when it talks about the blood of Christ. Or sometimes, you know, we, we think of it as some kind of a fluid or a magical substance and we begin, you know, this almost superstitious kind of mantra like we put the blood of Jesus on this or on that, we put the blood of Jesus on the car for protection, put the blood of Jesus on the house. That's not how it works, friends. No, when it's speaking of Jesus' blood, it's speaking of his blood poured out in death. Blood represents the fact that a death has occurred for sin. It's a way of using a figure of speech that we commonly use in language where you, uh, you say one word and that one word becomes a symbol for something larger that has happened. For instance, we, we might say the pen is mightier than the sword. And by that, we don't mean if, if, if you know, we get into a fight and I have a pen and you have a sword, I'm going to win. We mean writing is more powerful than fighting. Or, or if I say to someone, hey, would you lend me a hand, please? I'm not expecting you to chop off your hand and give it to me. Speaking of what the hand symbolizes, which is I'm asking you for help. And that's how the Bible is speaking. When it speaks of the blood of Jesus, it's talking about what his blood represents. It represents the fact that he poured out his blood and died. We're called to trust in his death. He entered once for all by offering himself once for all as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for sinners. He is fully God, God the Son eternally, who took on human flesh. His sacrifice has infinite value by virtue of the fact that he is the eternal son of God. And he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, perfectly obeying his father's commands in every way so that he became our perfect representative and our perfect substitute. And he laid down his life, poured out his blood, died, rose again, and enters on the basis of his perfect sacrifice offered once for all, no repetition does not need to be repeated. He entered and procured eternal redemption. The debt of sin has been paid. Those Old Testament credit card sacrifices were stacking up the debt. Jesus comes, pours out his blood, and says, it is finished. For all of the sins of his people under the Old Covenant, 
those who trusted him, all of the sins of his people under the new covenant, all of us who put our faith in Christ, the debt has been paid, dear friends, and we have freedom from sin's penalty, we have freedom from sin's power, we have freedom from sin's condemnation, we have freedom for all who would believe in him. And that leads us to the third element of this better sanctuary. We've looked at its sphere, it is heavenly, We've looked at its sacrifice that cannot be improved. And finally, we see its sanctification. The sanctification that has been provided for us to enter into this greater sanctuary. Verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, the author says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, under the old covenant system, there was a framework of different statuses uh, based on your ritual purity. Some of you might remember this from our series in Leviticus last year, but they had a status of unclean or clean or holy, and this determined your access into the camp of God's people and into the presence of God himself. Kind of worked like the Al-Hosin app, right? So if your Al-Hosin is green, you have access. You can enter into the mall or the restaurants. If it's not green, no access. At least you're not supposed to. And in the old covenant Israel, people of God, you can think of maybe an Al-Holy app, right? But if you are unclean, no entry, you're out of the camp. If you're clean, then you have some limited access. You can be among God's people. And only the priests who the status of holy could enter into the holy place and draw nearer to God. And here's the problem. Often things would make you unclean. And this didn't just have to do with moral uncleanness, although it pointed to that. This was ritualistic uncleanness. So you could become unclean by something you ate. If uh, a lizard fell in your food, you could become unclean by coming into contact with a dead body, which means you've touched the realm of death. And this would make you ritualistically unclean. And the only way to move from unclean to clean and from clean to holy would be through blood sacrifice and rituals for purification. He, he speaks about the blood of goats and bulls. He speaks about the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. What is, the, what is a heifer? Well, a heifer is a red cow. So there was this special ceremony in the book of Numbers chapter 19, where if someone came in contact with a dead body, in order to be made clean and fit for the camp once again, they had to take this red cow and sacrifice it, and then it would be burned, and then its ashes would be mixed with water, and you would be cleansed with that. It was all external purification and meant to teach something deeper. You see, it was meant to teach us that we are inwardly unclean. And the only way that we would be inwardly cleansed is by blood sacrifice. A perfect, better sacrifice. And this is the author's logic here. He's saying, well, if, if the blood of goats and bulls and if this red cow's ashes sounds so, <laughs> so funny... If, if the red cow's ashes could clean your bodies, how much more? How much more? How much superior 
is the cleansing, the sanctification that comes from the blood of the Son of God himself. Consider whose blood it is. He says, the blood of Christ. This is the eternal Son of God whose life has infinite value, who was perfect in every way. It is his blood that is poured out in death. It is his life that is offered as a sacrifice. Consider how he offered himself, the author says, through the eternal spirit. Now, this is debated, but I think that the author is referring here to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who dwells upon Christ. He, Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit in abundant measure as the Messiah, as the anointed Christ, the Son of God. The Spirit empowers our Lord Jesus Christ for His mission, even the completion and fulfillment of His mission as He died on the cross. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ who has the Spirit without measure. That's how He offered Himself. Consider the nature of His offering. He offered himself, the text says, without blemish to God. He was the perfect sacrifice. You see, under the old covenant, the sacrifices that you brought, you couldn't just bring a blind bull or, you know, you had a goat that you knew was going to die. Okay, I'll offer this. You couldn't do that. They had to be without blemish, perfect in every way, physically. Our Lord Jesus Christ was perfect in every way, spiritually and morally, absolutely pure infinitely pure, no sin in him, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners throughout his life, crying out to his father, not, by, not my will, but yours be done until he sweated blood in the garden of Gethsemane and obeyed the will of his God, our God, unto death. He offered himself without blemish. And what does this perfect sacrifice accomplish? It not only cleanses on the outside, it cleanses our conscience. It purifies the conscience from dead works. Now, when I say conscience, you know, some of you get this Im image in your mind maybe, especially some of the kids. You think of these animated cartoons, right, like the shoulder angel. You know, you know there's cartoons where someone is trying to make a decision. There's one angel on the shoulder telling you, yes, 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 do the right thing. And then there's a shoulder devil which is telling you, no, 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 let's do this and tempting, right? Sometimes we think of our conscience in that way and it's kind of a funny way of thinking about it. It's not ex entirely accurate. Uh, let me give you one author's definition. I think this is helpful. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Get that? The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So for the Christian who is rightly guided and instructed by Scripture, the conscience is a great blessing. It acts as our moral compass that enables us to shun sin and walk in God's ways. We should all strive to have a clean conscience. As one old proverb says, there is no pillow as soft as a clean conscience. But you see, for all of us, to one degree or another... Our consciences accuse us, don't they? Many people, they have a deceived conscience. They've deceived themselves. Remember, it's dictated by what you believe is right and wrong. So they deceive themselves into falsehood and falsely identifying what is right and wrong, what is truth, truth and falsehood. And so through false religion and false beliefs, they somehow find a way to pacify the pangs of conscience. Others sin against their conscience 
keep on sinning against it, harden themselves till their conscience is absolutely hardened, numb, and insensitive. The Bible speaks about having a seared conscience, like being seared with a hot iron so that it's burned over and doesn't feel anything. All of us deep down know this. Our conscience tells us, every single one of us, that in and of ourselves, we are guilty of dead works. What does the author mean by dead works? I think he's talking about sin because he's speaking with reference to the conscience. Works that lead to death. The wages of sin is death. And our consciences remind us, don't they? They tell us that we stand guilty before a holy God. That we will die. And we will face his judgment. And we will have to answer for all of our deeds. We know deep down that we are sinners and that we stand condemned. We are like Macbeth's wife in Shakespeare's play. Maybe you've read this, but Macbeth and his wife plot and murder the good king. And then Macbeth's wife is haunted by her conscience so that she roams through the castle every night, scrubbing her hands, washing her hands, and screaming. She had this vision of blood on her hands, knowing what she's done, screaming out, out, damn spot, out! The blood is on me still. All the perfumes in Arabia will not soften, cleanse this little hand. All of us are this way. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, you know this. You know that deep down your conscience accuses you. You try to suppress it. We try to suppress it. We try to hide from it. We try to run from it. We binge ourselves with entertainment trying to numb it. We go off into false hopes and false beliefs and false religion trying to escape it. We try to push it to the periphery of our minds by keeping ourselves busy. But all of us know, dear friends, that we are guilty of dead works, that we are sinners, and that the wages of sin is death. And so the all-important question for us is, how could we be clean? How could our consciences be cleansed? How could you be clean? And the author of Hebrews tells you today, the only way, the only way is by the blood of the Son of God who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God for anyone who trusts him. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so I want to call you, if, if your conscience has been awakened this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, and you feel the weight of a guilty conscience, telling you that you are in sin. Don't shake it off, dear friend. Don't shake off what I'm saying. I want to call you to flee and trust in this Christ who is able to save you to the uttermost, to give you the freedom, the soft pillow of a clear conscience. His blood sanctifies, purifies us from sin and makes us clean brings us into fellowship with God and makes us holy. And I want to speak to you, dear Christians, brothers and sisters. When you are weighed down with the burden of guilt, when Satan stands to accuse you, even if you feel this morning like you've been wandering from God, and if you've wandered far off, there is cleansing, there is forgiveness in the blood of Christ. Even for you. What does the author say is the purpose of our cleansing? He says it very clearly. 
The blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And the word there for serve in the original Greek is simply the word that is used consistently to refer to worship. Called to worship the living God. To draw near to the living God. To come to Him. We have boldness and freedom of access. The gospel writers record for us that when our Lord Jesus Christ died, when the Son of God died on the cross, as He uttered a loud cry and gave up His life in death, the veil of the temple that had stood for generations and generations, barring access into the presence of God, was torn from top to bottom, saying, there is a new and living way into God's presence. And we can draw near with boldness and confidence. And we do so primarily in this gathering right here. It is right here that we experience the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly city, as we gather in corporate worship. As you come to Hebrews chapter 12, he'll tell us, speaking of the church's gathering for worship, he'll tell us that we have come to the heavenly Zion. We have come to the heavenly city, to the very presence of God himself. What greater motivation could be there to be regular and faithful in gathering with the church for worship, in gathering with the church for congregational prayer? We have access. We've been summoned to draw near with boldness. If, if, if you received an invitation from the sheikh tomorrow to come and meet with him, to sit in his majlis and talk with him, you, I doubt any of you would respond and say, you know what, I'm a little busy, I have some other things going on. You would cancel all your other appointments and make it a priority. And so also we are to make our gatherings a priority to gather in the most holy place. What access we have been granted in worship, in prayer. And not only in congregational gatherings, but in our personal lives, in your personal life. Why would you neglect to pray? Because we can boldly come to his throne of grace. We can come as boldly as my daughters dare to come. They just come into my room and they say, Daddy. And that's what we have with our Heavenly Father because of what Christ has done in the new and better sanctuary, dear friends. We can enter in, into heaven's holy place. We can enter in boldly by His blood. We can approach His throne of grace. We can enter in into this once Forbidden holy place, we can enter in. We can live in goodness and in mercy all our days. We can enter in a new and living way. By our faith, He will receive us when we pray. We don't have to be afraid to seek His face. We can enter in. We can enter in. We can enter in. 